Hello, and welcome to The Scope. A student-run and recorded podcast is put on by the Student Collaborative on Health Policy, a student group that works with the Duke Margolis Center on all health policy-related matters. I'm Sophie Tan, a recent graduate of Duke University and incoming research analyst with the advisory board of United Health Group. I'm joined by my partner today, Angela Huang, a freshman at Duke pursuing Program 2, an individualized degree program on psychiatric disability and policy. Episode 15, the second of three episodes on health policy and early childhood development. In our last episode, we talked in general about the trends and challenges with children's development and policy. One key issue we touched on was the big challenge of scaling up promising programs and whether this can be done cost-effectively. Another point that we frequently touched on was that although technology is improving, lowering rates of infant and maternal mortality, we must now turn our attention to other factors that affect a child's quality of life. Complications, for example, associated with premature births, are correlated with an increasing prevalence of neurodevelopmental and mental health disorders. In other words, although children are surviving, there are other factors that we have to take into account when assessing their health and quality of life. So it is important, now more than ever, to pay attention to children's and parents' behavioral and mental health and to think very carefully about how these can be better integrated into primary health care. One way to scaffold the current policy landscape for children's development and health is to think of current interventions that, on the one hand, target healthy childhood development by addressing a specific area of health, and strategies, on the other hand, that more heavily integrate different health-related determinants. So, to elaborate a bit more on this framework, on the one hand, there are programs that are implemented with a very specific purpose in mind. Examples of these are programs that the government has funded to improve nutrition among struggling households, such as the Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants and Children, the WIC program, a program that supports low-income mothers at nutritional risk from pregnancy up to six months postpartum, and children up to five years old providing them with nutritious foods to supplement their diets, educating them on best healthy eating practices, and assisting individuals with referrals to healthcare when needed. The purpose of these programs is very clear, to improve nutrition for at-risk families. On the other hand, and this is what we'll be focusing on in this episode, there are policies that seek to improve healthcare by integrating services across different sectors, from access to safe and affordable housing, to job training programs, and much, much more. A few examples of these have included the much-praised Maternal Infant and Early Childhood Home Visiting Programs, MIECHV, the Early Head Start Programs and Head Start Programs, which provide and connect families with health, social services, and child development professionals, a holistic approach to children's growth and health that focuses on equipping parents with job-relevant skills, educating parents about their children's developmental milestones, and on proper parenting techniques, among other things. And finally, zooming out a bit, there are policies that have been implemented on a broader societal level that impact children's health, such as public health insurance programs like Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program, CHIP, and other more specifically poverty-related policies. 
This includes policies such as the Earned Income Tax Credit, which incentivizes employment and extends tax breaks to low to moderate income workers based on income earned and the number of children per household, as well as the Child Tax Credit that decreases taxpayers' tax liability for each qualifying dependent child. This applies to low-income families who pay payroll taxes, but who might not necessarily owe federal income tax. Together, these policies have been helpful in countering childhood poverty and its negative effects on health. So that's our quick rundown of policy as we see it. Now to address our burning questions from last episode and to dig deeper into specific evidence-based practices and community intervention models of healthcare, we'll be speaking with Dr. Kelly Kelleher, Principal Investigator and Vice President of Community Health at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Among other things, he has also previously served as director for the Center for Innovation in Pediatric Research, a department within the hospital's Abigail Wexner Research Institute, as well as on many committees for the National Academy of Medicine and the American Academy of Pediatrics. In his research, Dr. Kelleher focuses on mental health and substance abuse services, as well as on improving accessibility, effectiveness, and quality of healthcare services for children and their families. making the time to speak with us today, Dr. Kelleher. And so for the first part, we interviewed Dr. Boat, yes. um, Dr. Thomas Boat. And he he said, oh, you might want to reach out to Dr. Kelleher and Dr. Perrin. So we did. And 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 you both responded. So we were just, you know, kind of jumping with joy and we ended up doing part two and part three. So that's kind of how it went. Got it. Okay. Sounds good. All right. So let's go with the first question. So focusing on early education and educating parents on better parenting techniques are two important aspects of advancing children's health. Now, a number of evidence-based practices like the Triple P Parenting Program and the Video Interaction Project VIP, programs that prevent behavioral and emotional problems through parenting and family support programs and programs that support literacy and parent-child interactions through videotaped and age-appropriate resources, respectively. Now, there are many ways that these models can be implemented, such as integration within, let's say, a family-centered medical home model, one model of healthcare delivery. But there are There are varying levels of success in these programs implementation within different organizations and communities. So in your opinion, what are some ways that we can standardize the implementation of such programs and how can the government help with this? I think they're both good questions. How how do we standardize the implementation of evidence-based programs for early childhood? And also, what role does the government play? The challenge is whether we should. Uh, standardized implementation. And I think what we're learning a lot is that, uh, you know, life course theory teaches us that adverse experiences accrue from every stage, preconception all the way throughout life. And we really have different environments in different places. And so we can standardize process, how we implement programs, or we could standardize outcomes. What are the outcomes we're seeking? And by paying for outcomes from the government perspective, Oftentimes, we get lots of creative solutions about how to get to those outcomes. Um, so we can allow people to achieve best outcomes through a variety of paths that might have cultural relevance 
for different communities. And so personally, I think the less we, we think about, we, less we think about communities needing us and what we're going to do to communities, and the more we think about communities in relationship as assets and what do people bring to the table and what assets are available locally and how do we build on those. So I would rather have the flexibility from the federal level to achieve my outcomes locally and have incentives and facilitators that allow me to achieve that than necessarily standardizing. I do think there's a really big role, though, for the government also to certify programs as evidence-based, to acknowledge what the outcome should be, and to make sure that information sharing is possible across sectors, because children in particular are engaged in so many different sectors, education, child welfare, juvenile justice. You know, so we need data sharing that goes across those agencies. And again, that's another place where the government can facilitate that because right now it's almost impossible to, to go back and forth uh, across different sectors. Yeah, so I really like the point you made about maybe it might be best not so much to focus on a specific implementation model as much as outcomes and, and streamline it like that. And I like the point you made about also uh, about the government helping with data sharing. Are there any best practices? Are there any systems that have been shown to work? Sure, there there are great uh, examples. Um, you know, for example, so like uh, Delaware and, and then even here in Columbus, Ohio, our, our very large school health program have finally engage each other enough where we can do school health programs and obtain data on absenteeism and grades and performance in school to know whether or not we're making a difference. But those agreements uh, have taken years to develop and consents that allow both school officials and health officials to share data. And I think if we had best practices emerging from the Department of Education and the Health and Human Services at the federal level saying, these are best practices, everybody should follow these rules for data sharing. FERP and HIPAA are privacy laws in each of those, the education and health sector respectively, could also be aligned more closely so that people trying to serve children can serve them effectively without violating privacy or confidentiality. Do you think there are any unique challenges within the realm of child health policy when it comes to ensuring the standardization of outcomes? I, I do. I uh, think there are several unique aspects of child policy. Now, first of all, in my opinion, all policy is child policy. So whether we're talking transportation sector or building code or uh, education policy, we really have to begin to understand that children are immensely influenced by the environment and the neighborhood, not just their family. So if we can learn about the unique contributions of community and, and how community policy is child policy. So that's that's number one. I also think that child development makes paying for outcomes very difficult. So in the adult world, we have these wonderful things where we show that if we can save money for diabetics or heart disease patients for a year, and we can get our prevention practices paid for, and Medicare is really happy, and even Medicaid does that to some extent. But a lot of child outcomes are 10 and 20 years away. I mean, the good behavior game as an example of a prevention policy may not show full effects until children are in high school or above. It improves high school graduation and drug use in adolescence, and yet it's implemented in kindergartners. So how do we pay for preventive services that will not be effective for society for 10 years or 15 years? And our current annual health insurance contracts are, are one year at a time. So people can turn to different policies and plans. And so 
we have set everything up in an adult model, and that makes child policy harder as a result. And so, yes, children, and I think the final piece that's difficult is the developmental aspect of childhood. Children are changing so fast, measuring development, getting proxy reports on their health status, getting children to, to be assessed. It's, it's much more difficult to assess child future stat, healthcare status and metabolism than it is getting an A1C on an adult, a human woman A1C. So we, for diabetes or obesity or whatever. So we have some real challenges. I think the real positive is that everybody wants to do the right thing here. People are generally trying to help. So we, and we also have a different healthcare system for children because we have regionalized providers rather than like large children's hospitals and groups of pediatricians and primary care docs versus competitive. So pediatrics is a collaborative field in regional ways, whereas adult care tends to be competitive even on the local front. Shifting gears a little bit, I know you've also conducted extensive research on streamlining pediatric care for children who suffer from poverty, mental disorders, and substance abuse. And I'm wondering how effective you think maternal, infant, and early childhood home visiting programs have been in determining proper target populations to serve. That's a great question. So maternal and child health home visiting programs are internationally been in existence for a long time. In in the United States, we've really just taken these up more forcefully in the last few years, beginning with the ACA passage and then more recently with some expansions. Maternal home and child home visiting is highly effective at a number of outcomes that we care about. Child abuse, prematurity prevention, if it's done early enough, and you know better maternal depression, even primary care things like better pediatric visits and immunization status. So for a variety of reasons, maternal child home visiting programs are essential. One of the challenges is uh, that doing them on scale is, is next to impossible. We in the United States fund only a very few slots for all the children who potentially would be eligible. And so selecting who gets those programs is very challenging. Again, I cite Columbus as an example because I know it best, but you know, our large number of child home visiting programs here only recently became coordinated so that the sickest children, the children most at risk, started getting our most intensive programs. And so we now monitor and hand off referrals depending on which program to use. So a program like Nurse Family Partnership that uses nurses might be the best program for a child that's or a, a woman who's pregnant and is medically at risk uh, because that you're getting a nurse, but it's a very expensive intervention because it uses a registered nurse to do the visitation. So uh, the dyad can be in excess of $10,000 over, over a few years. So selecting who gets those precious slots and who gets another home visiting program is really important. And most communities have not come together and set up registries or tiered referral programs that could better assign those slots. Frankly, I just wish we had more of them uh, because we're still at, at less than a 50% even eligible uh, people getting it. So I guess that might also be a recommendation going forward for some of these communities, set up registries um, and, and set up these tier referral programs. And that, you know, would ensure that slots are allocated more efficiently. Yes, that's exactly right. You know, uh, Sophie, it's a, it's a combination of allocating the resources to the communities that need it, making sure the communities that need it have programs, 
And then of the programs that are there, making sure the right people get hooked up. Uh, again, I'll just give two examples. Uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital has a very large, the largest central Ohio home visiting program. But we run Healthy Families America and Nurse Family Partnership. And the Healthy Families America has very good outcomes uh, in more than 20 research studies so far, randomized trials. But it does not use nurses. And so it's less expensive than the nurse family partnership, they, which has slightly different outcomes. And we, so we reserve the nurse family partnership for the families of the women who are pregnant, who we think are most vulnerable to prematurity and to things like medical conditions, and then use Healthy Families America for the other things. Oh, when me and Angela were going through questions to ask you, we decided to skip this question, but I think the flow would be really good. So I'm going to ask it anyway. But a follow-up question to that was the MIECHV program allows states to choose from 19 evidence-based models. And, and that's a lot for people to you know sift through when they're trying to make a choice on what model to go with. So do you have any suggestions on how these stakeholders can choose which is the best model to implement for themselves, for their community? and what factors um, should they consider when choosing between these different models? I do have a little bit. Uh, I do think of advice, and that mostly focuses, again, in my core belief that these are relationship-based models. So at the core of all the successful home visiting programs, centering pregnancy programs, and other interventions that we employ to try to improve birth outcomes are always relationships. And when, when women who are involved and families who are involved feel connected. And so it is critically important that a local community finds which of the interventions out there have the relationship building models that most match the population they want to serve. So we've had, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but I even think about some of the child abuse prevention programs and behavioral training that we do for early parents. But what might work on a Navajo reservation is not going to work in the Bronx. And so looking at both different models and saying which model fits our community, our culture, more effectively is the most important factor. There are cost factors that get involved. There are availability of professionals so uh, that also have to be taken into account. But for me, the, the predominant factor has to be the cultural acceptability of the intervention model for the community you're most trying to serve. So I guess, yeah, if we had to kind of provide a scaffolding model for these stakeholders, it would be, you know, one, look at the relationship aspect, how culturally acceptable it is, and then maybe look at the cost and availability. That's, that's right. That's, that's what I would say. Now, of course, I don't have to run the programs and meet the budget. So, you know, that what grant you get from the feds or the, or the state. So that always comes down the line. And I'm curious, but you talked about, you know, cultural acceptability and how these and different programs can, you know, better fit cultural um, norms and expectations. Can you give an example? I'm just trying to see sure. how that Here's works. A very out. specific example is some of the parenting training, for example, depending on you mentioned the positive parenting program and some of the others. We had some early parenting training programs that talked about the use of timeout for children how you might set a child in timeout facing away from you in different ages, different lengths of time, and so that they learn that that was an unacceptable behavior. But that intervention in Oklahoma, when we were trying to implement it, I was an advisor to a grant, but Dr. Chapman was trying to work on a project to implement it in some of the tribal states. Timeout was not an acceptable thing for the, for the elders. 
that you would take a child out of their community or out of their out of the circle. You know, they wanted something different. So to modify that or to adapt it or pick one of the other training programs. So just again, just a, an ex example. Another example is what we're seeing here in Columbus right now. Our maternal mortality and infant mortality in Columbus, Ohio, is relatively low and getting lower compared to many large cities. But our infant mortality disparity for Black Americans uh, in Columbus is much worse. We have 2.8 times as many deaths among Black infants as we do white. And even though both are improving, that's unacceptable. And so uh, in talking to many of the women, we have tried to improve the quality of care prenatal care for traditional medical services. But many of the women that we talk to do not trust that service. They, the, the OB services that we are offering in our traditional medical centers. And so it's not gonna, we're not gonna solve the problem that way by just improving that service. We have to add, so we're looking at adding doulas in some places. We're looking at adding other kinds of engagement. We're looking, of course, we want to make our services more acceptable, too, in trying to retrain them. But if women already are set against using those services because they have a history or know some history of discrimination or what they feel are inappropriate care, it's almost impossible to get them back to the door. So we're not going to fix that by, by continuing to try to just work in the medical sector. So I think it's definitely clear that it is really important to consider how the community responds or else they won't use that service. However, we also mentioned before that we have been having trouble either scaling up or expanding these programs or allowing it to extend to more a more diverse population. So how do you kind of balance this idea that we need to be able to adjust each community, which might require more manpower, more time, and more money perhaps to adjust these programs while also trying to be able to reach a broader audience? That's, that's a great question, Angela. But, and I, my answer may sound simplistic, but in my mind, it's money. And it's not more money. It's money spent better. And in particular, what I mean by that is, you know, we are focused on still, after all these years of talking about value-based purchasing and outcomes purchasing, we are still focused on process, fee-for-service, process-based purchasing for most employers and most uh, healthcare settings. So OBGYN care uh, or, or prenatal care that we just talked about, most pediatric care is still paid for on a fee-for-service basis. So it's better to do high volume and low quality, and it's better to do high volume and not measure quality than it is to do high quality care that actually could be potentially more efficient. So you know, I I can't, there are some areas we can talk about it very specifically, like is it cheaper to pay for prevention or not? And we can discuss that and debate. It depends on how you weight things. But either way, as long as we pay for high-cost care, preference high-cost care with high payments, we will not get people to invest in prevention and community services. So, and if you're asking me how do we get people to change their behavior, one of the ways is paying for outcomes. Uh, we've seen Mark changes in what people focus on depending on outcomes. Uh, we know that EHRs weren't popular and doctors said they would never do them, but the federal incentives came down the pipe and they were so powerful, just a little before your time, but uh, they were so powerful that everybody switched to EHR in a very few years. The same thing has begun to happen with many managed care companies with their incentives increasing on the prevention side. We're seeing more and more preventive care. 
when we see California incentivized with perinatal bundles and where the OBGYNs and the pediatricians are all at risk for bad birth outcomes, bad birth outcomes go down. And they're not the only state. Arkansas has a perinatal bundle and so do Louisiana. So again, the financial incentives at the highest level, not the not the necessarily the local level all the time, but really can drive behavior in, in radically different ways. Some commentator, commentators have noticed that to be effective, programs like the one that we've been just talking about should be paired with a robust early childhood service system. You have also been involved with interventions that strengthen community commitment to improving important services like housing and education. Can you talk about this and some other promising programs and the strategies that you have found that are helpful in promoting collaborative efforts within the community? Yeah, thanks. So there's a several lessons that we've experienced here locally. I'm not sure they're generalizable yet because um, they're, some of them are new, but our community development process here, so the field of community development in general, in fact, is about 80 years old, but it's not something that healthcare people have discovered until the last 10 or 15 years. And so, you know, that's the $400 billion industry that builds affordable housing and housing projects and job training in our communities around the country. But frankly, hospitals and healthcare systems have largely been absent from those discussions. And we certainly haven't measured health outcomes from those things. And it's our belief that if we can invest in areas of concentrated disadvantage, where redlining has occurred over the last 80 years and poverty is intensely concentrated, those, those few neighborhoods in each community that account for a disproportionate share of poor child outcomes, we would eliminate a lot of the disparities and eliminate a lot of the problems that we see. So we have decided to take a community development approach rather than a patient-centric approach. So we want our medical services and our healthcare services to be as integrated as possible with social services and, and to do well. But we really want our communities to have strong social services for families. We agree with the international literature that says strong social services make for healthy communities for children. And so we are investing in affordable housing, in job development, in job training programs, in wealth building through tax preparation services, in training people on financial literacy, helping women get a new child tax credit, which is life-changing for some people. And we're also investing in working on their schools and school health-based services, giving people choices about where they come for their health care rather than come to us. So come to us, even though it's a Beautiful glass and steel tower here in central Ohio, which you got to come see it sometime. But it's, it's intimidating. If you're in the community, you have three small kids and have to ride two bus lines. So why not have services at every school where possible? Why not have services at clinics in the community? Why not have home visiting care uh, that's accessible? And why not do a lot more telemedicine? Because we already know families prefer that wherever possible when they have small children. So... We are trying to make those things a reality as best we can. I won't say that it's easy learning, nor will I say that it's popular among a lot of the clinicians because it takes them, they have to change. So I was, I was reading about the Healthy Homes Project that you're doing as part of the Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy uh, Families Initiative. And I was really interested in the findings that you made about, you know, what the most efficient house building programs are and how that can be used to make these interventions more cost effective. Like I was reading about how, you know, using modular homes, a house that is built 
pot by pot, section by section in a factory setting and just kind of put together might be more cost effective and accessory dwelling units. So a secondary house or apartment that shares the, the building lot of a larger house. I've also been reading, I know there have been certain projects, for example, for military projects that have focused on creating these complexes um, where there are living communal areas that people can gather, let's say the lobby of these massive complexes. And that also helps foster a sense of community. Uh, and also, I guess the children can, you know, assemble in a certain area and, and, and other measures like that. Have you tried to implement some of these, you know, similar kinds of um, arrangements? So, you know, some of the underlying principles on community development that seem to be successful in the newest models, number one, I already mentioned asset-based, so that we go into a community and say, rather than what's wrong with this community, what are the assets here? Are there a lot of empty houses? Are there some parks that have been let go in disrepair? Are there, is there, is there space or is there water available? What about the people? What, what, what assets do we have there? So. I think really deciding that we are approaching this not as here we come as the saviors or here we come as you know heroes or anything like that, but rather we are part of the neighborhood or we are we want to be part of the neighborhood in some some way, shape, or form. And as neighbors, we have to build relationships first. So building the relationships and understanding. And part of what you're talking about, which I love, is this concept of third spaces. So we have spaces we live, we have spaces we work or study, and then third space is where we gather. And the sense of gathering really is critical because it turns out that to have a mixed income, sustainable community that doesn't require long-term investment, but still supports people at every income level and of every type, really needs to have third spaces that are gathering places for everyone, not just people with money or without money. So you can't have spaces that only attract one kind of person. And we have to have spaces that are open and accessible on transportation lines, and they have to be. So yes, we we have street fairs on a regular basis on the south side of Columbus here, and we're beginning one in Linden. We do, and they we close the street down with the help of the city and the neighborhood development council and everybody of the residents, but it gathers all kinds of people. So, and we, try to have art spaces, uh, murals, and other things. We have one of the largest fresh produce delivery. The Middle Ohio Food Bank helps us support a food pharmacy, which is a food with a pharmacy as the F pharmacy rather than the PH pharmacy. And it's one of the largest distribution places for fresh produce in the country. But in that process, there's always music outside and other gather and, and things happening whenever the weather's decent so that people hang out. The idea is to gather people. Now, during COVID times, we've been restricted on that. But again, you have to bring people together who are different. And, and many of our projects involve trying to find ways to bring different kinds of people into the same space. So in the, in the case of Ohio, so you, you, I like the point you made about, you know, targeting, using an asset asset-based approach instead of, you know, this is the problem, we're going to fix it. And specifically in the case of Ohio, what would you say were the assets that you, you know, could build on? One of the things here is, for example, Ohio has more children's hospitals than almost anywhere in the country and, and very large ones and strongest. So our Children's Hospital Association has been a great asset and as we work with the state to try to pass enabling legislation because programs 
aren't very good without good policies. So when you can get enabling policies that help children and young families, it makes all the programming a lot easier. So working with the State Department of Education to try to get them to share data, working with the State Medicaid Department to try to allow us to do flex funding on setting up an accountable care organization so we can do value-based purchasing. Working with, you know, all those things help when you have good relationships with the state and through your children's hospital association or other hospital association. We have several communities here in Ohio where we have a, a it's, it's very much a sense of neighborhoods. So these are older neighborhoods and a lot of people want to do great things in those older neighborhoods. There's a history there. So being able to draw out the history through murals and storytelling and histories and arts fairs gathers a lot of people. And then when we start to invest in those houses nearby and do things, the artists want to come down and live there and people want to have so different kinds of people move into the neighborhood. It's not any, I'd love to say it's just a simple cookbook, but it's really participating with the neighbors to say, what do you want? And how, how can we play a role in that? But in the long run, we're seeing cost of care for our children get less. So our accountable care organization does better. So there's a business argument involved. I like that. I like that point. Business argument involved and relationship, community, outreach and building. Yeah. So in talking about community-based approaches, I also wanted to ask about the Pediatric Vital Science Project. So as a bit of context behind this, Nationwide Children's Hospital has tried to move from a purely pediatric-focused, primary healthcare-focused model of caring for patients to a more population-level approach um, to caring for patients. And it has implemented a few initiatives to this end. One of the, this initiative that we're talking about, the Pediatric Vital Signs Initiative, is an effort to measure the well-being of children in Franklin County, Ohio. So keeping track of children's health on a population level by standardizing eight metrics that it uses to evaluate children's health. And one thing I was really interested in was the, the metrics that you developed. So there were eight metrics that you outlined. And that made me think a while ago of how you said, you know, rather than try to standardize implementation, you might want to standardize the, the outcomes that you're looking for. And I was wondering, how did you, how did you come, how did you end up using these eight metrics? I know I read that you kind of adopted um, the framework from the National Academy of Medicines. 15 standardized metrics framework. And I'm wondering, you know, what uh, factors do you have to consider, especially regarding how different child health care is from adult health care? It's a fun question to think about. I, I was recalling back and how these things started. And it, always there's a history, of course. But, you know, first we have a, because of our large accountable care organization for Medicaid and our hospital that, you know, the board said, how do we know? You know, we want to be the best accountable care organization and the best hospital in the country. How do we know if our children are doing better? And we said, well, we have the lowest, you know, we have the fewest medical errors of any place. And we have high rates of our safety and our medical, our surgical outcomes are very good. And I said, yeah, but how do we know if our children in the community are healthy? And when we looked, you know, they weren't. I mean, we had outstanding hospital metrics, classic hospital metrics but terrible population metrics. High infant mortality rate, especially in the African-American community, high rate of suicide out in the community, lots of asthma, problems that are largely, and, and, and other problems, but largely problems that were driven by the social environment. 
So we're providing great classic medical care and having very little input on the population metrics of children in the community. And both the board and the leadership said that's that's not adequate. We we want all the children to be healthy, whether they're our patients or not. And so what can we do to do, you know, how do we measure that? Well, you know, everybody sort of knew about infant mortality, but when the vital signs came out in 2015 from the National Academy of Medicine, as a large set of indicators, including some population health ones, we said, you know, we can adapt this. Although we don't want to use adult measures like life expectancy for adults, you know, in the community or as a mortality measure, we'll use infant mortality. And rather than use, you know, unwanted pregnancy in the community, we'll use teen pregnancy. And rather than use, uh, you know, a number of adults working successfully, we're going to use high school graduation. And so, you know, we didn't want to use mortality death rate because for addiction as a substance abuse measure, because not many, unfortunately, not many adolescents die of their addiction, but they get hospitalized and they have other problems. So thinking about that. So again, there were many committees. We went through each measure in great detail and took a long time with it. And we said, what are we prepared to partner with people in the community? Because we're no longer saying it's just our patients. We're going to measure these eight things and we're going to try to influence every child in the county. We're going to try to change these indicators for the entire county, whether or not they come to our hospital. I I thought many places, like I thought the school districts, all the school districts would come get up in arms saying, well, what's Children's Hospital doing? Thinking about high school graduation. And, and I thought the uh, coroner's office might get frustrated with our child mortality measure. And, and instead, you know what everybody said? We want your muscle behind this. We want your white coats behind this. We, we can't wait to have your, your data analysis team help us with some of this. And we can't wait to have your quality improvement teams teach us about your quality improvement methods. So the reception has been spectacular. And they are now goals for our board on the 2030 dashboard for our hospital that we will improve these numbers by 2030. And they are aspirational. I, I don't think anybody else has said across the entire county we're going to do this, but we really believe that it's the only way the health system will know if they're succeeding eventually, because hospital metrics don't make sense for child health outcomes. So I, I know you, you talked about earlier, you talked about how it's probably best to focus on standardizing goals versus standardizing implementation. And when you say, you know, this framework, for example, might be a good recommendation for policy, federal policy level initiatives. Well, I, I think it's, again, aspirational. Yes, but I, do I believe that Medicaid programs, for example, should eventually be incentivizing based on kindergarten readiness, infant mortality, and high school graduation? Yes, I do believe that. So how soon that'll happen or how fast we can make that happen, I don't know. But I, I think it's almost impossible to tell people, well, only one intervention is the right intervention. And plus, we're going to learn things over time about how to make things better anyway. But yes. If you drive people toward a better outcome all the time, and I've been truly impressed with how much our staff and our team and our hospital employees have really helped, for example, the school systems learn about quality improvement methods and how to, how to do a better job of tracking high school dropouts and, you know, on and on and on. I really see the difference they're making in infant mortality at the county level. So we, there's a real We've underestimated our influence 
both politically, financially, and scientifically, when we think we can't do these other things. So you think this is not, you know, specifically, it's not only specific to, you know, Nationwide Children's Hospital, but if more hospitals, for example, try to outreach the community, you think it would be favorably received? I will say that Nationwide Children's Hospital has an ideal setup. We have a large value-based purchasing system that gets incentivized for healthier children. So that makes a business big deal. Number two, the Columbus community and business leaders here, economic leaders, political leaders, all endorse child health here as a big priority. That's important too. Number three, we have a large children's hospital that's committed to this and leadership that's embracing it. So do we have the ideal setup? Yes, we do. But I consistently am, no matter where I go, see that communities need leadership from children's healthcare systems to make a difference. And they, they desire it whenever you talk to them. When I talk to people in, even in affordable housing, they say, I wish our hospitals would get involved in affordable housing just for a little bit of guidance. Like, how do we measure outcomes or how do we measure? One simple example that is such a low cost intervention. Low-income housing tax credit deals are supported by the federal government, and every large community you know, gets, so Columbus gets like three, two to three low-income housing tax credit, 9% deals, which is just a form of them, every year. Private developers are dying for these things, and they compete ferociously because they're so lucrative. And each deal is usually around 10 to $15 million and generates 60 new affordable housing units for the community. And by partnering with individual deals, we've helped them get better scores by offering to put things like childcare in the, in the community space or a well clinic or other things. We're not putting money in. We're just putting programming into their free space. And yet that influences the score they get and where we get them to locate it and which population gets served. And we get to go in and say, here's extra childcare spaces for the community. So there are so many ways that hospitals can influence things that don't involve necessarily big investments, but do involve influencing how public systems operate that can improve the health of kids. That's a great note on, you know, the use of advocacy, not necessarily, you know, money making the world go around, but other ways of kind of using yeah. persuasion and advocacy. Yeah. Angela, do you have any other questions for now? Nope, I think I'm good. I really appreciate all your insights. Though. This has been a great conversation. Well, I hope I hope it's helpful for others, but I, I'm excited that you guys are out there pushing the edge and envelope for people in this field because uh, we need to ask these hard questions. Uh, in the past, we've been too satisfied with our own typical system. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with us. Yeah, I mean, we just ended up, I mean, there was so many good questions. We didn't get to go through everything, but I'm pretty happy with, with the way this turned out. And we learned a lot. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you All so right. much for making the time. Yeah, good luck with your future. I hope you guys, you know, look around when you're done. You have you had some of the best questions of all the interviews I've done in the last couple of years. So. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was. You were well informed. So, all right. Thanks again. And that's it for today. This episode was written and produced by myself and Angela Huang. A big thank you to Charlotte Thomas and Josie Lee 
our editors-in-chief, and to the rest of the Scope team. And of course, thank you to our listeners. If you have any questions about this episode or any ideas for future podcasts, please message us on Twitter at Duke Scope. That's S-E-O-H-P. Thank you so much again for listening today, and be sure to tune in to part three of this episode on health policy and early childhood development. Stay safe, everyone. Bye.